they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Philodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! yes. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for an interview. That is right, we teased a lot of these during the Tokyo Olympic coverage that we had a few interviews banked and ready to go. And we are here today to bring you the very first one of those. We are chatting, of course, with our first ever competitor from the sport of luge, Hannah Campbell-Pegg, a two-time Olympian, competed in 2006 and 2010 for Australia. And this is a unique chat, a a very interesting chat, learning about just how Hannah got involved in the sport of luge. I guess how her time competing at the Olympics led her on to some more bigger and better things in the sport of luge in this country, and just what it takes to get people involved in luge in Australia. A fascinating and fun, insightful chat here that I know you are going to enjoy. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with Olympic luge athlete Hannah Campbell-Pegg. Very excited to have our next guest here on Off the Podium as we continue to tick off the sports in some way. We're wanting to uh, speak to athletes from all the different Olympic sports. And I'm I'm very excited for today's guest. She is from the sport of luge. Now, I I love the luge. I, I love watching anything to do with the sliding sports, be it bobsled, skeleton, and luge. And luge is definitely one of these ones that has fascinated me. If anyone listened to our coverage during Pyeongchang, you would remember our fondness for the luge, uh, particular certain variants of luge, which maybe we can talk about in this interview. But our guest today competed in two Olympics, the first Australian to ever compete in two Olympics in the sport of luge in 2006 in Turin and 2010 in Vancouver. She also currently serves as the president of Luge Australia and is helping out right now with our current Luge athlete who is uh, aiming to compete in his third Olympics, Alex Fazalo, and we'll talk about him, of course, in this interview. But right now, we're not talking about him. We're talking about Hannah Campbell-Pegg, and she's with me right now. Hannah, welcome to Off the Podium. Hi, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a massive pleasure because, as I said, Luge is just one of these sports that I and and fascinated by it. It's, it's so fun to watch. It's never boring. It's always exciting. And you're the first person, as I said, from luge on here. And I think the first person in my life that I can ever say that I've talked to is who has done luge. Um, so I'm sure you've been asked all the questions beforehand. But first of all, I'm going to ask flat out the obvious question. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why do you want to strap on a sled and go down that fast? I mean, it's, it's a crazy sport. It's amazing. But I don't think I'd ever want to do it. Why, why did you want to do it? <laughs> I think I needed a challenge. I took, I did like pretty much everything when I was a kid. Uh, played a lot of tennis, water polo, swimming, surfing, like every Australian does. Um, yeah, and took everything to a certain level and I think got a bit bored, to be honest. And then uh, somebody said to me, why don't you try out for the women's bobsleigh team? And tried out for that, did it for a couple of years um, and then decided to switch over. Um, to luge after after two years in 2004, I think it was. 
yes, 2004. And then, um, yeah, kept going from there because it was just such a challenge because um, yeah, it was so different from anything I'd ever done before. And it was so exciting at the same time. I was going to say, you know, tennis, water polo, they don't exactly, you know, it's not like you were doing sprinting or something like that. It's kind of uh, a little bit different. Was it Was it also a case of uh, something like the Olympics? Had, had the Olympics always been a goal of yours? Kind of is that why you were doing things like tennis and water polo to maybe aim for an Olympics? And then the bobsled switch came because you were thinking, well, I'd love to go to an Olympics. I'm going to try different Olympic sports. I think when you always take a sport, like, you know, especially when you're training for it, you always picture yourself at the highest level anyway. So I think when, you know, when I was a kid and I was playing tennis, I'd always picture myself being at the Australian Open or something. And when I was doing water polo, I was a bit later when I got into water polo as well. So I think I was a bit more realistic about my expectations of where I could go with that. <laughs> um, I was just happy being at university level and so on. So, um, and, and at university level, we did play with quite a few people on the state and national teams, but I'd see the, um, the skill difference between us. So I was a bit more realistic, I think, in that area. But definitely when you're at school, I think you're, you're always looking and thinking, oh, I could be at the Olympics and I could do this. And I think... Most kids who play sport have that dream to be at the Olympics because it is the pinnacle of a sporting performance. What is that process like then when you say you want to try out for the women's bobsleigh team? Because I can't imagine you just rock up to your local bobsled track. You kind of can't do that in Australia. So, I mean, how how do you go about trying out for the Australian bobsled team? Well, I think it was just, um, look, they had a dry track down in Docklands in Melbourne at the time and me and another girl went down. I think, no, the first time I went down and we went down and, look, they they took everybody because there were, I think, so few of us who were interested. So it wasn't really any mean feat in trying out for it. (laughs) And then (laughs) we went overseas um, and did what was called a bobsleigh school um, and did that and you had to pass your driving and get your little driver's licence for, um, for driving a bobsleigh. Do you have L plates on the sled? <laughs> if only. Yeah. I ran my two runs down the track and I crashed both of them. Um, so that wasn't wasn't too brilliant. Uh, but, then, but then after that I you know, got back in and, and kind of got a little bit more oriented on the track and, and loved it and that was, that was it but it was uh you know and then and then and then the training started really i suppose because i suppose with these sports because you don't have access to them you really do have to go over and you can get some of the best sprinters and the best athletes in the world but they might not be able to transfer those skills onto running on ice or or so on or they actually just might be extremely scared about going down a bobsleigh track because i remember the first time i looked at one and I thought, <laughs> I thought it was going to be totally different than it was. These corners were, you know, taller than a house um, on some of them, like taller than a two-storied house. And and these athletes and these sleds were in the middle of them or, you know, they're doing a bad line. They were up the top or down the bottom. Um, but the, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming. Uh, at first and especially the first couple of runs. So I think with a lot of these athletes, you kind of have to get over there and these type of sports and try it because we've got no facilities here in Australia in order to be able to do that. You've got to take that chance. And uh, that's what I did and went overseas and gave it a go. And then, yeah, and then I and then just kept going. <laughs> 
Because it's also with any of the sliding sports, be it bobsleigh, luge and skeleton. I mean, it's isn't there only something like about 20 or something courses in the world or there's, there's only, because obviously generally you will only have a sliding course for an Olympic city or some world cup city. So there's actually not even just outside of an Australia thing, right? There's, there's limited facilities in the world in general. Very limited. Um, so I just actually did my thesis on this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> on tracks in the world. So I should really know, but um, 15 operations, 17 wow. operational. Wow. So less than 20. Um, yeah, actually 15 operational because five had shut down, um, mm. but they've all got plans to try and get reinstated um, and operate. So it's, yeah, it's there aren't many and there's not one in um, the Southern Hemisphere either, So which is really tricky for people from New Zealand. Well, there's a natural track in New Zealand, but it's just a training track and it's not that similar to artificial luge. So... Um, yeah, so there's nothing for Australians and Kiwis and, you know, anybody from Tonga, as we had a slider from Tonga before, to um, to train at. That's close. So the closest tracks for us are in Asia. So you've always got to travel. You've always got to be somewhere else. And, and the logistics and the expense involved in those logistics as well is, um, yeah, challenging at times. Because it's always fascinating when you sort of hear a lot of stories about Australian Winter Olympians, you know, particularly, say, with the success we've had in things like aerials and things like that, where you see the facilities, like they've just built that one in Queensland now, and obviously it's like the water training. So you can kind of, I guess, makeshift something to a, to a level for those sports. But I guess you can't just build some giant track that's, you know, in the, in the middle of the suburbs of Sydney or something like that to kind of replicate what you were achieving in a sport like bobsleigh, luge or skeleton, can you? No, and at a cost of over a hundred thousand, over a hundred million dollars, um, like US dollars as well, uh, it's it's just not it's not sustainable either, and they cost a lot to maintain each year as well. So it's um, yeah, it's it's not something that you could just go and build because the you know you've got to have the right climate, but also the right location for everybody to come and you know, use, use the track to make sure that it is utilised properly too. So, yeah, and that's why you've only got them in these Winter Olympic regions or these winter regions um, because they're the, yeah, otherwise we wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have anywhere near as many luge or bobsleigh tracks in the world if there hadn't been the Olympics, if it wasn't involved in the Olympics. I'm just thinking back to the Royan HG Smiggins Holes bid for 2010. I don't know how that long that track would have lasted the legacy. It might have been a bit of a white elephant after uh, th- th- those games. You-, you talked about seeing the track for the first time kind of not sort of that wasn't exactly what you were expecting. Do you remember your first run in a bobsled down one of those tracks and, and that that feeling? Because I can imagine that that is a-, a pretty insane feeling getting up to those speeds and going down a track like that, particularly, you know, first of all on a bobsled and eventually when you went down on, on a luge. Yeah, my very first run, I remember just feeling totally out of control and not knowing which corner I was in, what part of the track. I was so disoriented. I didn't know how I was steering this thing properly. Um, yeah, and that eventuated in me crashing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but you know, you, you learn things from every mistake. So, did you but, did you want to quit after that? Were you like, nah, this isn't for me? Or were you thinking like, that was fun. I'm doing that again. <laughs> and then you know, because we we're told we had to do two runs. So I'm the type of person who, even if I'm quite scared of something, I'll still get back in and I'll still do it. Um, and I did, and I crashed again. <laughs> and I, I went home that night, and I was just like. 
I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? But then um, the coach said, all right, we're going to go through this again and get you down. And and we did. And then it was totally fine after that. Um, I enjoyed it. And actually, it registered what I was meant to do and got used to it. So it was, yeah, it was just all really overwhelming because of these camps as well. You had so many people because, like, illusion is different. You've got one slave, one person, whereas in Bob's say you've got two, one slave, two people. So there were so many people there uh, learning how to drive and from different countries. It was also overwhelming and, um, yeah, so foreign as well. <laughs> Was there a pathway from what you were doing in bobsled, like to to the Olympics? Like, was that obviously the goal? But like, was you, were you on track? Kind of like, what what was the initial moment when you were like, okay, no, I'm switching to luge. This maybe isn't working out what I thought it would work out like. Oh, for me, bobsled just it just got too political, um, and oh, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. It became yeah, just not not nice to be involved in um and I thought you know what <sighs> yeah I'd prefer to do I, I still love sliding I still want the challenge because it was after two years um that I'd done and I'd also suffered quite a few injuries I had stress fractures in my legs and um and I was like okay I'm I'm over this and and yeah and so I just ended up saying okay right I still love sliding what can I do and um it was pretty much process of elimination because bobsled and skeleton were tied together in the same federation. So luge was the sport that wasn't. Um, I went, okay, well, I'll give that a go. And uh, gave it a go. And, uh, yeah, the, the next year went over and did a, a luge camp um, and had a great time. And it was, it was brilliant. Like, you know, there was, I think I crashed once in that whole week, the first week, and... Um, had a great little group of people that we did it with. And then we had what was called a small nations team. So you had a collection of athletes from Slovenia, from Slovakia, from Argentina, Venezuela, um, Bulgaria. And so we formed this awesome little family. And I think that's what was missing in bobsleigh as well, because it was that it was that family. And, and even now to this day, we're still all together. And it's, I suppose, yeah, all of them that made the experience so much better and the encouragement from everybody that just kept me going and you loved it so much more. But even just that feeling of me by myself and me being in control was um, a lot better, I think, as well than Bob's side. I have to ask the obvious question. Why, why are all three not under the same umbrella? Why are bobsled and skeleton together but luge is separate if you're all sliding sports? Exactly. So um, two separate international federations as well. Right. Um, they used to all be under the same umbrella years and years and years ago. Um, and then they had a split um, <coughs> purely because I think uh, they have different start heights as well. Uh, so, I mean, it makes sense for bobsleigh and skeleton to run off the same uh, start height because they both run and sprint at the beginning of theirs and they use the same start, whereas luge actually needs a ramp. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, – uh, they just operate on different circuits as well. So it's uh, – yeah, there, I think there was probably some political reason for it way back. So, so there's a rivalry then, I'm guessing. So, like, the losers and then you're not all sitting together at, like, the table for at the, the post-Olympics function or something like that. Oh, no, like, the Australians, we all get along really well. Um, 
Uh, yeah, but we don't see each other on circuit ever, which is a real shame. Uh, whereas the skeleton and the bobsleigh usually all travel together, whereas luge, we don't, um, we, which is a bit sad. We're, whereas we sometimes run in and be like, oh, okay, I'm here for two days and we cross paths and when one person was training or something um, and we'd catch up. But, uh, yeah, we'd never compete at the same places, which was which was a bit sad. But, um, no, we still, still all get along, still, yeah, a lot of us from back in the day, still good mates. <laughs> That's good to know. I'm glad that there isn't, you know, just this intra-rivalry where all the sledding sports and that are kind of secretly, you know, throwing um, snowballs at each other or something afterwards. <laughs> you know, potentially. Oh, no, and, and internationally they get along as well because they, they need to um, in order to coordinate things like safety for tracks um, and the facilities as well. So, and their programs each year and who's got what track at what time. So um, I do think they all do get along. And, you know, Luge, because Luge brings athletes, they start in Germany. They start from five years old at times. So Luge kind of, you have a, a very young sort of athlete contingent. And then athletes are usually done in their twenties. Like, um, you know, unless you're, some of the, the older ones used to last. Like, I mean, there was one guy who was still going in their 40s, which is very rare. But you could still then switch your career as a luge athlete into being a bobsleigh driver because they're more 20, like late tw- late 20s into their 30s. As uh, And you'd probably be one of the best bobsleigh drivers if you've been driving a luge for so many years because you know all the tracks and you know all the feeling and the driving points, the steering points. With those tracks in the world, obviously, as you said, luge, you start on the ramp where a skeleton and bobsleigh are doing the running start. Do each of those tracks cater for luge as well as bobsleigh? I mean, is there like one track in the world that maybe doesn't have the luge ramp that you can never go to? Uh, yeah, there's look, there's a couple of those. Um, like, so the original Cortina is too dangerous for a luge, um, is what they always said. Um, I never went there. It closed in 2008. Um, I think it was only being used for skeleton and bobsleigh at that stage. But Oberhof in Germany, um, it, it could only be used maybe for monobob now, which is like the single bob, but mainly it's known as a loose track. And that's um, basically because there isn't the ramps as well. Um, the, the um, and I don't, I, yeah, and just sometimes the way that the curves go too, I think, but I just know that it's not something that Bob says really train on. But I mean, Germany's got three other tracks, so. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned about it not being safe for luge. I mean, I guess on that question, like, is there a, a key besides the ramp and besides the starting point for the Bobson skeleton? Like, does a luge take the course differently to a skeleton, for example? I mean, two very similar. I guess as a, a non-athlete, I'm going to say, well, the only difference is you go down forward and go down backwards. I'm sure there's a lot of differences between the two, but, like, is, is there much of a difference to how a luge is going to take a track versus a skeleton and then and then a bobsled as well? Um, just in the lines, I'd say, as well. I mean, I, um, yeah, I've taken, I think, two runs down on a skeleton once before. Um, but, I mean, the... the the big difference, though, as well, I suppose, between a bobsleigh and going down the luge too is like, you know, if the bobsleigh hits the wall, the bobsleigh hits the wall, whereas if you hit a wall, you hit the wall. It hurts. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you do look, the driving is very different. Um, so in, in luge, you're doing something all the time 
um, with your steering wires. And you've got, you've got six steering points on a sled in luge, whereas in a bobsleigh you've got two, which is your D-rings, which is your handles. So, um, you know, there, there is some difference in the lines and the steering points uh, would be different, but it's been, oh, gosh, 20 years since I drove a bobsleigh, so I'm probably quite... Um, out of the out of the picture of being able to comment on that, but yeah, there was it was definitely different and um, went when between the two when I was driving them. When you get on a luge for the first time, so you mentioned there two steering points for a bobsled, six for a luge. I mean, are you surprised? Like, I'm surprised to hear that there are six steering points for for a luge. I mean, how how does that go through your head? And and what tell me where are the six steering points? Where are you steering from? So you steer with both your shoulders um, by laying your uh, shoulders into the pod. You've got you're you're holding onto handles as well um, underneath your sort of backside, and then your feet as well, both your feet. So um, and your steering kind of changes with each way, like with the um, every time you get onto a curve or something, you can um, you generally push a shoulder in, like put pull a handle and then push your opposite foot down as well in order to steer. To Sounds very complicated. Like, I mean, God, I can barely steer a car with two hands and you're doing this with like, you know, every part of your body. Like, wow. <laughs> and, and it really depends on the corner as well. Um, so a lot of people don't understand that you, you actually, like people think that you just like, like Roy and HG said, you know, you just lie back and do nothing. Um, <laughs> We're, I'm going to say right now, Hannah, we were guilty of saying that during Pyeongchang. I'm apologising right now for our comment. Don't don't go back and listen to those. We were like, ah, luge is easy. You just push off and you lay there. What else do you do? Yeah, yeah. well, my do-nothing approach resulted in <laughs> me ending up in, uh, in a hospital with a broken back. Um, so <laughs> so that, was, that was in my early days. But the... Um, well, it, basically every corner is different and before every, we go to a track, we go the day before or the morning before we get there um, and before we do our runs and we have to go through and do a track walk where you go from the bottom up to the top, going through the last corner and building on. So so the, the track's got 14 curves you go through and you'd be like, okay, you exit at this point and steering off this corner and then you go to the beginning of the corner and you go all right so it's a it's a middle entry and then you get on the wall you steer with you with you and and it'll be different steering points for each one like sometimes they'll be like just a shoulder steer on this or they'll be like okay this is where you really steer it with your with your shoulder your handles and your foot like um so it's quite yeah there's there's quite a science to it wow wow <laughs> that's fascinating behind it and that's just one curve and then you know in the middle of the curve you have to hold hold it there on the wall so that you don't lose and so that um any pressure so it's and it's yeah it's it's it really is a science so and i remember one coach saying to me if you want to get really good at this go and study physics i was like i'd like to get really good at this but i don't want to study physics (laughs) (laughs) i I feel that one yeah (laughs) because <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that like fascinating like, I, i'm a big formula one fan so you know kind of the there's ways and means of entering and exiting a corner obviously in formula one and kind of studying that and everything along those lines but i can imagine in that aspect what you're saying about how a certain corner is a certain part of the body that you're steering in that like does that then 
just say like the best losers in the world, do they have a style where maybe you've got the ones who are so good with their shoulders versus some who are really good with their, their legs? Like, does that make a difference or is it such an all around sort of thing that you can't really have, say, somebody who is renowned as the shoulder steerer versus the leg steerer? No, it's um, also, I always remember watching one of the top guys who was, you know, won nearly every, um, so was Armin Zergler and he was from Italy and he, Oh, won the gold in Turin and he's, he's amazing. He was great. But I always remember watching him and everybody sort of held their breath as he went into one corner and you have these shades that go down so that the sun doesn't hit the shades and, um, and hit the ice and melt it. So, and he came out the shades perfectly. And I think as well, like some, and somebody said to me, ah, oh, you see, that's, that's a true athlete. Like he, it, you, you can never not, sometimes you're always going to get into trouble. Um, in these sports, but it's your ability to fix that, that problem as well and steer yourself out of trouble. So, um, and he was extremely good at that, but it comes down to experience too. Like one coach always used to say to me, you've got to get your ice meters up and it is just runs down the track and it's just practice. Um, and we've had that many people who sit there and they're like, oh, you know, but they'll be able to make the Olympics next year. And I'm like, no, you won't be able to make the Olympics yet next year. You need to do a lot of training. Like you're not safe. Like you shouldn't push yourself like if anything for me to win I probably you know I was very lucky to make I qualified 30 out of 30 in an Olympic adjusted field but I'd only been sliding 19 weeks by wow. the time that I actually qualified for those Olympics by the time that I got to the games I'd only had 26 weeks on ice um, all up and those as well they weren't you know a training week you can get 20 plus runs whereas a competition week you're lucky if you got like nine or ten um, depending on which, you know, uh, yeah, like qualification round you're in, so usually around ten. But you, it, there's not a lot of not a lot of time on the ice, um, and and that's I think where the problems come in is the inexperience. So, and but that's what happens when you're from a country like Australia, <laughs> where you don't have track that you can go down. But uh, that's why you have got to spend your time living overseas, like. Alex is going to be leaving in a couple of weeks to go over to America just purely so he can get on the ice and start training. Wow, wow. And is there like a go-to, is, is America the go-to place for Australian luge? Is that where you base it because it's the best, easiest way to sort of, you know, good relationship with the Americans? Like where was your sort of go-to track that you spent most of your time training when you could? So what we used to do, so the International Federation set up, set up a small nations team for when you kind of begin, but you kind of grow out of this team um, because a lot of beginners come along and as you progress, like it's, it's natural progression. Like you see athletes anyway, changing coaches in order to, this coach has taken me so far, so I've got to go move on to the next one. And they used to organise things called partnerships or they said Patenschaft in German. Um, and so I had a Patenschaft with the Latvian team. For, I had one with the Canadian team for a few years um, <laughs> and I did that over a year. Um, before the Vancouver Games, um, and that was good. And so you actually immerse yourself in the Canadian team and and travel around with them. And then after the Olympics, I ended up having a partnership with the Latvian team, which was fantastic because um, it gave me some other training on another track and a different style of coaching as well. Um, and then and then Alex has a partnership with America. Great. which is 
So, um, which has been a great experience as well. I think as well, traveling with uh, Latvia was fantastic, but there is also that language divide. So I would try and learn some Russian to be able to communicate with the Latvian coaches and some Latvian. And yeah, so there was always, <coughs> and Alex, Alex had a partnership with them as well. Uh, yeah, we moved and are they accommodating in that? Like, are they very happy to kind of help accommodate sort of these smaller nations to help them out? Yeah, they are. And it, that's what's so great about, like, it's, it's a small sport internationally. Um, if you think about it, like, with the population that competes in the sport. Um, and the nations, it is one big family. Uh, and that's, you know, it's it, it, so rewarding to be a part of it as well. Um, and you've got... So each, the International Federation will pay the, not a huge sum either, but they will pay them um, a partnership sort of uh, fee, I suppose, to take on one of the people from the smaller nations to help the development. So the International Federation is very into assisting smaller nations in order to develop the sport. So it's, Interesting. it's really nice. Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's a really nice involvement and, and it's a great way of doing it. So. The Swedish used to have a partnership with um, the Americans and the Koreans with Russia. And, um, yeah, throughout the years, I think the French used to have one with Russia years ago when I did it, and the Japanese with the Italians. So it was... I'm um, noticing you're not saying the the Germans clearly because they win everything. They just don't want to share this success, right? The Germans are just, ah, screw it. We're not helping anyone. (laughs) to, To be really fair to the Germans, actually, they do take a lot of partnerships. They took Poland for a while. I think they 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 do have someone that travels with them, um, but because I've been, you know, I'm not travelling on circuit any longer. I wouldn't know who it is. But when I was travelling, they took the Polish um, team and the Polish, and I think they had the Croatians. Right. Okay. Well, good to see that. Like, I mean, haven't they won? Like, isn't it? I'm looking here. At least in the women's, they haven't lost the gold since 1994. So, um, and then in in the men's, sort of a little bit uh, more spread out. But uh, yeah, the Germans are a little bit dominant in luge. I, I can imagine that going to compete in Germany is a little bit different to competing somewhere else because I, I I'm guessing it's almost like just a prime time television sport, and they're rock stars over there in Germany. The German lugists. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I think you go into one town in Koenigsee and um, they have a sign saying, you know, this athlete lives here as you drive into the town. So, wow. it's, um, yeah, I think they're, and they all drive around in their sponsored cars and then <laughs> the BMWs and Mercedes and things like that. They turn up in really old vans and things. So. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that you mentioned about your first time in a bobsled? Do you remember your first time on, on a luge? And, I mean, how can, besides the obvious differences between a, a sled, uh, a bobsled and a, and, a, and a luge sled, like, I mean, was there like a key difference in, in that feeling when you're going down on your back versus sort of in a, almost a, a sled, like a bobsled? I remember getting off because as well, you start, um, <coughs> you don't just go, so there's four, say there's 14 corners on a track. You just don't throw yourself off from corner one. You actually start, I remember first time we started, we started from corner nine. So wow. we only had four corners to go through. Um, and I remember getting off and being like, that was that was actually really easy. <laughs> so, um, but then you keep moving up and then we'd move up to corner five and then... <laughs> We'd move up to corner one. So um, after you'd done many runs down as well, 
And that's why I think a lot of athletes start when they're early as well. They do the junior circuit, which will just go from corner five for, for a certain amount of time. And then they won't get up until they're doing seniors. Um, but yeah, I do, I do remember it was, it was a nice feeling. I remember thinking that going, this is actually good, but I kind of wish I'd started, I started on Calgary, which was a, what we call a gliding track rather than a sliding track. The sliding one's where you really got to steer. Gliding is where you can kind of lay back and, you know, steer, but it's not. Roy, Roy and HG, it basically just lay there and do nothing. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's not, it's hard to be fast on some of these tracks um, because you've got to make sure you've got great aerodynamic position and you make as little mistakes as possible. Um, <coughs> but, excuse me, coughing. The, um, but he, uh, yeah, this, this track, I wish I'd started on a more technical track so I didn't have such a, um, <laughs> a wrong opinion of the sport because when I got to one of the technical tracks, like I had a great first week and then my second week I went to another track called Altenburg, which is one of the most challenging tracks in the world in Germany. And out of 11 runs on that track, I crashed seven. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. And, and, a, and a crash in luge is a little bit different to a bobsled because you kind of, as you were saying before, don't really have a lot of shielding around you. So I can imagine that first time coming off a luge is a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, 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 I think it is. But then it's actually like sliding on the ice. If the ice is done well, like in Oldenburg, they've got what they call an ice master, an ice champion, and he's brilliant. He makes really beautiful soft ice. So crashing there is not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> on other tracks <laughs> <laughs> what's the worst what's the worst you don't want to crash at oh couldn't but it's not because of the ice i like winterberg i hate crashing i hated crashing at winterberg because you couldn't make it up the outrun you'd get stuck in a it was you have to walk uphill actually no most crash most tracks you don't want to crash at <laughs> um, because as well i had this german coach who used to say if you crash you have to walk up. And so you'd have to put a 23 kilo sled over your shoulder and wet, you know, everything, just walk up. And then you were looking at probably about 800 metres uphill. Wow. Wow. Sometimes, but yeah, it was, wasn't great. This is, this is not the glory of cool runnings when they're carrying the sled across the line and everyone's cheering from them. This is like pick yourself up and kind of tail between your legs. Character building somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that look, outlook of it. I, I can imagine it's, I mean, interesting then from the training perspective that obviously with bobsled, as you sort of mentioning, it's, it's the sprint off the start of the line. Like, uh, you know, we talked to Brenda Walker. She was mentioning about the importance of that and kind of what that leads into it. But for Luge, you're sitting, you're from a sitting position and you're using your hands to build that up. So is that the key difference in training that you're working more on your upper body, whereas maybe you were working more sort of on the lower body for, or is there, is there a similar training regime that when you switch sports, there wasn't much of a change? Um, there wasn't, uh, I mean, look, I, with Bob say there was a lot of focus on weights. Um, a lot of like, you know, heavy lifting, <coughs> um, and sprints training. Uh, but, I mean, we didn't do a lot of sprints training, but I know quite a few athletes do just purely for speed, and I do blocks of that. Um, but basically it was about power. Um, and 
You didn't really train. I did train the upper body, but not specifically because you train. I, I did do strength, a lot of strength lifting as well, but I suppose the difference with my training was I wasn't doing the sprint training. Um, that was probably it. This in the strength training, probably quite similar. Um, but, yeah, it was I'm trying to think back. Yeah, we, we were doing all the same, you know, in the gym. It was the deadlifts, the power cleans, the, you know, clean and jerks, all of those things. But as, as, as I got more injured, uh, I was doing less of those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, basically it's all about power. And at the beginning of a loose start as well, it's, it's, it's an explosive start. And that's the same with um, Bob Say. And, yeah, you had to... We had to practice specifically for doing your paddles, we call them at the beginning, and you wear these tiny little finger spikes um, that are strapped to your gloves and help you grip onto the ice like a pair of spikes in athletics would do for when you're running on tartan. And is there then a process where, say, maybe you just spend a day practicing that start and do you kind of almost have like a... A, a, a training track where you can just are literally practicing that start. So, you know, obviously like with the bobsled, you, you're doing that sort of push start practice. So with you, you're kind of doing that. Is there like positions you can do that? Or is that something you can even do in Australia? Like, is there sort of a, sort of a temporary setup you can do to just at least practice the start? Yeah. So we had some start handles welded um, and we put them together. Uh, firstly, when I first started training, we had them out in an ice rink um, and we put them out there and I was training with an ice rink, with the actual sled on ice. Whereas then when I was at the Institute of Sport, we had a wheeled sled and we'd just put weights all on these, um, <laughs> all on the on the start handles, uh, which would pretty much take all the weights of the gym. Uh, so every, no one else could really be like, is anybody else really lifting that heavy? <laughs> so, um, so I'd take all the weights and then I'd practice on a wheeled sled. Um, doing my starts as well with my coach at the Institute on their little, had like a 30-metre tartan track in the middle of the gym. You were the first Australian luge Olympian uh, since 1994, Roger White, and obviously Diane Ogle in, in 1992. At that point when you had switched to luge, were, were there any other Australian athletes a- attempting? Like were, were you literally the only one? Had there been other Australians that had been competing on the luge team but just hadn't made it to an Olympics? Like give us an idea of the luge scene when you switched over to luge at that point. There was another guy who was doing it at the beginning um, when I started as well. He, um, yeah, he started too, but uh, he was a lot older when he started and it's sadly not a sport for the for the old. <laughs> Damn it, I don't have a chance, Hannah. What are you telling me? Yeah. <laughs> Can't uh, start tomorrow. <laughs> we get we get a lot of it. I started like and in hindsight as well. I started when I was twenty two and it was too late. Um, you know, everybody else had started when they were like fifteen, sixteen, and Alex started at fifteen. Uh, but me like starting I you know, I had a bit of an idea because I'd done Bob Say. But, you know, it's one of those things, it's, you know, like surfing takes years to get good at. Um, and that's, yeah, it's something you can't really just pick up. And, and when you're younger, you have a lot more feeling. Um, but also my coach, one of my coaches always used to say, no, I don't want anybody over the age of 22 or 20, 24, I think it was, because they don't listen. 
<laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> was what he used to say. And I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, so he, but yeah, the, uh, this other guy started, but he, you, yeah, it's, it's a sport that you've got to, but even if, I mean, we had younger ones as well start after me and, and they didn't have the feeling as well on the sled. So it's, it, I think it's an individual thing as well. It's not so much about the age. Um, you could be great at all those things and you could have the feeling on the sled and be relaxed. But I think, you know, as you get older, <laughs> you, you, um, you know, you, you get a bit more fearful of a lot more things as well. And you're a lot more aware. Whereas when you're younger, it's like, oh yeah, what's going to happen to me? <laughs> so so what's that then like then in terms of of, of the support like if do, do you then go to the australian olympic committee and be like hey i want to compete in luge was there a luge federation when you did that in australia like did that still exist even though they say weren't any athletes or were you still under the banner of bobsled and skeleton back then no so the luge federation was defunct um we had to re-establish it um and i re-established it with a guy called ted polglaze who was a 98 olympian uh, for bobsleigh and so we re-established the federation and then that enabled me to go over and this other guy as well to go over and compete um that's so yeah. unique though to think that like you literally have to reinstate a federation to compete like this oh. is i mean not like you know if you're a if you're a sprinter or a swimmer you don't have to do this like it's just that is such a unique situation to think that you have to in order to compete on the world stage reinstate the federation in your country yeah, and then we look, it was an interesting process too, which I'm really glad now I went through um, like from the beginning stage because I got to know a lot of people who were involved with it in the past um, and, you know, find out a lot about how you could do it. And Diane Ogle, back when she began, she had to set up the whole federation as well herself in order to compete too. It was quite, um, it was quite, and so her and I were quite similar in that respect. So, um, yeah, and I'm just thankful for athletes now coming along, like for Alex, um, he's never had to do that in order to compete in the sport. Um, and that's what, you know, I'd like to prevent happening <laughs> <laughs> for other athletes because it, it, it was a journey, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, that's definite. Um, and it's been a continuous journey because, you know, as we all know, there's a lot of governance involved in uh, running a national federation too. And, um, but I probably wouldn't have understood as many things going on um, as an athlete if I hadn't had that experience of doing all of those things. However, at the same time, I kind of wish I could have just been an athlete and not had mm. to have done those things. Which uh, when you eventually get to your first uh, international event, you've gone through all that, that situation. I mean, does that bring a sense of pride? I mean, obviously the pride of representing your country, of course, but, you know, you've gone through a little bit more than the Germans have and sort of these people that, again, you've reinstated a federation. So, I mean, I can imagine that that brings with itself a sense of pride when you eventually put the green and gold on and you, you line up for your first international competition. I think um, <laughs> my first international competition, uh, that was the one where I lay back and did nothing. Uh, <laughs> and ended up in an ambulance and uh, waking up uh, strapped to a spinal board um, wow. in a hospital. Good start. Yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs> sure, your parents were very happy. Oh, good, good choice, Hannah. Glad you did that sport. <laughs> yeah, well, um, nobody called my parents. It was only when I was in the hospital and got the nurse when I'd woken up 
I think the next day to call um, call my parents and she called them and uh, she was like, and I called my mum, mum's like, what's happened? Uh, and she was a bit sort of uh, horrified that I was in hospital. And then I didn't know what hospital I was in either. So my parents didn't know, so they were all quite, yeah, distressed. But I don't think it, but I didn't know the extent of my injuries as well. So it was kind of all well done because <laughs> I didn't know the extent of my injuries. So nobody really got unnecessarily too freaked out about it. It was only actually when I came home four months later that we got x-rays on my back and found out that I had four fractured vertebrae. Wow. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Four and months that, later. That explains a lot of the, you know, the problems I've been having. <laughs> wow. So what, what, what you, so what year was this? Was this 2004? 2004. Yeah. So, you know, less than two years away from an Olympics. I mean, at that point, I can imagine the goal is to try and make the Olympics, but was that like the furthest thing from your mind at that moment? One year out from qualifying for the Olympics. So, yeah, it was um, the goal. No, I'd always, I'd always said to myself, and I'd said this with Ted as well, we'd said, look, Torino's a bonus. You make Torino, it's an absolute bonus. Um, but really the goal is 2010. Um, and, yeah, and then as we kind of got closer and closer, I was like, I actually could do this. And I wanted to keep my options open because I had to do five competitions by December 31st. Um, so basically, and I had to learn all these brand new tracks like within a week, within 10 runs as well um, to be able to compete on them. So <clears throat> it, was, it, was, it was challenging to make those Olympics, really challenging because I'd never seen these tracks or slid down them and I was still learning to slide and I had to kind of just put everything into it. And I do remember when I finished the competition and they came out with the, the overall standings list and because every week you could go through, my coach used to go through and cross out who was like, because it's an Olympic adjusted field is three people from each nation mm-hmm. um, as, as the maximum. And when you could have four or sometimes five competing, five names, but only four in one World Cup race. So you could scratch the the fourth person from Germany or the fourth person from the US or something like that. So my coach used to go through and cross that out every single week after every race. He'd be like, oh, this week you you might make it. This week you might not, you know. So, um, and that was interesting. And I remember after the final race in Lake Placid and he got back in the car and he said, you're in. And I went, okay. And it was before the 31st um, date. I think it was around the on the 15th or something. And wow. I was flying to go back to Australia to have um, my, my Christmas back in the sun, finally. Um, yeah, and I kind of I went by San Francisco to see a friend and I remember riding a cable car with her and turning to her and being like, dude, I've just qualified for the Olympics. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it kind of just set in at that moment. And I went, wow, I'm going. Nice. <laughs> wow. So, so this is only two months removed from 2006. Uh, yeah, so this was in the, yeah December and then we competed uh, Valentine's Day, I remember, wow. on, in February. February so how does, yeah. how does that work then in terms of that you've gotten that spot? Does does the AOC kind of have like a, a seat open just in case you qualify? Because given you're the only athlete, I'm sure they're kind of looking like, how does then the AOC, do you have to call the AOC, hey guys, I qualified, or they already know that you've qualified? Well, I, I don't 
think they thought I would because I was so new to the sport as well and they hadn't had anybody in luge for ages. So I know they, they thought we'd had the talk and they were like, oh, okay, you could potentially was part of the um, shadow team. So I don't think they, um, uh, yeah, I don't think they thought I could actually end up being part of it. It was, it was a slim chance anyway. So, yeah, we had the call and I remember calling because but they don't get the official, they actually, the International Federation will send an official letter to the AOC and to, yeah, to the AOC, which will then say you have one place from your nation. So if there were two of us, two females, they would say, uh, you know, there's one place. They don't actually list a name. That's up to the National Federation to choose who goes. Um, but, you know, there was many, so they said, you've got one place. So, so I qualified, um, which was, yeah. And, and then they were like, wow, you're on the team. So I actually think I was one of the, I was one of the first officially listed for 2006 and 2010 because, um, yeah, we found out so early, whereas some people weren't finding out until a couple of weeks before the Olympics. It's fascinating because, it, like, I, I I hate to keep bringing up cool runnings here, but like, I just I just I imagine that scene when you know John Candy's going to the head of the Jamaican Federation, saying like, "We want a bobsled," and he's like, "No, we're not going to support it as a Jamaican." I'm just I'm seeing you going into the AOC and John Coates or something sitting there, and you're just going like, "I want to compete in luge." No, don't be silly. We don't support luge, and you're going on the streets raising money, and then you get the nod, and you you have to do it anyway because you know you've gotten the slot. There's a movie that could be made about this, Anna. <laughs> Funnily enough, John was so supportive, um, John Coates, when we set it up, because he was, I think he was, he was on the board or he was president of the original Luge Federation when it was formed by Diane Ogle. Um, so he was on the board or something like that. So he was really supportive of Luge, which was, which was fantastic. Um, and they, yeah, actually the AOC were, the AOC were brilliant. Um, they were really supportive. Um and getting it all set up, but you know, I hadn't had my uniforms or anything done because I don't think anyone was expecting it. But yeah, no, it's everything was pulled together at the very last minute. But and also now, since I organised all of that for Alex, I realised what a feat that must have been to have got that all done because it was yeah, it was challenging for me to do. Because <laughs> just the level of everything with it, because. You know, most Olympians we've talked to on this show, you know, are obviously maybe in sports where, you know, Australia or Canada have an established history and all that sort of stuff. And obviously, you know, Australia had had representation in luge, but we've gone over that. But you're also the solitary athlete from a sport at the Olympics. It's not like you've got a, a team of people or teammates or things like that. You're, you're it. You're Australia's only, you know, luge athlete. So there's so many levels to just the amazement of that. And you talk about that moment when you realise you're going to the Olympia. I mean, do, do you have a little moment, like even if you're just like at home or something like that, where you just like, you just do a little dance, you're like, fuck, I'm going to be an Olympian or like just, I don't know, like is there just some sort of moment outside of when you were on that cable car where all of this work, all of this effort, you're the solitary luge athlete, you've started a federation and you are going to an Olympic Games? <laughs> I think for me, or it was more, I actually, I think I freaked out a little bit more because... Torino as a track itself for me wasn't wasn't a good track. I don't think for anyone it was a good track. Um, I'd witnessed one of my teammates from the Small Nations team and he competed for Brazil. Um, I witnessed him have a pretty bad accident uh, where he was lying in a pool of blood and after having this crash and he lost his eyesight in one eye and uh, after the crash and 
you know, I saw the ambulance doors fly open as he was being resuscitated. Um, and that sadly stuck with me for a very long time. So I think after I was like, oh, I've made the Olympics. But then I was like, oh, I knew my skill level in this sport and it wasn't great at two, in 2006 or the end of 2005 at that stage. So I needed to take myself off and do a lot more training. And that was something I tried to do um, a lot of, but still, yeah, the anxiety. Like, I mean, I remember the first time I went to Torino and we're doing a track walk and the first sled I saw go by crashed and the sled, like half of the sled came apart. And I remember just thinking, oh, my gosh. And it was just this, yeah, nightmare track, um, wow. which they fixed. But for somebody who didn't have the experience <laughs> and found this track challenge, and I'd also had my accident. So that's why, like, I witnessed the accident of my mate because um, I had had an accident the day before and got taken off in an ambulance to hospital. And as I was in this hospital lying there in bed, there were about seven of us who come in, all in our sliding gear, <laughs> all getting taken into hospital by ambulance because we're all having crashes. Um, and then yeah, we, we, weren't, we weren't very, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, but for me, with my experience, sort of I think I was freaking out um, and getting really nervous. But then <laughs> on the first day um, of competition, I ended up achieving one of my goals. So I was really, which was to get below, I think I'd never broken the 50 second on the track. So, you know, and, and I got down safely and yeah. So once I got through it, it was, yeah, it, it yeah, calmed down. It was once it was over, it was a lot, it was a lot better. Cause in that whole race as well, there were seven crashes. So out of there, we ended up having 31 in the competition and only 24 finished. Wow. Yeah, Which so I'm, was, I'm looking here that, that I mean, of those that didn't finish, I mean, you beat a Canadian, you beat an Austrian, you beat an American, you beat an Italian, you've beaten some pretty established nations. You can turn around and say, hey, as an Australian <laughs> loser, I beat Canada, I beat America, I beat Italy. Like, you're beating established nations, Hannah. Well, I think one of the shocks of that race was as well um, the Italian uh, Anastasia. She was tipped to win because uh, she had so much, or get a medal at least, and she was second off. And I remember we were all sitting up in the start house and 81 is the what they call out when somebody's crashed and they were on some of the tracks. And um, we just heard this 81 and this was the second sled off for the whole competition. And we were all looking at each other going, no, no, she kind of crashed. And, yeah, 81. She was, she was done. She was out. That was her Olympic Games gone. It's, it's one of those sports where... You, I mean, you're never going to cheer for someone to crash. Of course you're not. But, like, if, if all of a sudden you... To see them crash. Well, well, I was hoping you were going to say that. I was trying to be nice, Hannah, because I can imagine if all of a sudden you have this most amazing run and you're in the gold and all of a sudden, like, 13, 14, 15 people in front of you crash. You're like, shit, I'm in with a chance here. Like, you pull a Bradbury. Like, you literally, everyone crashes except for you. You're a gold medalist. So I, at that point, you're going, yes, I'm a gold medalist. Like Badly in luge, that will never happen. You'll never have 16 <laughs> crashes. Um, but, like... Let's face it, like spectators watch Luge, Bobsay and Skeleton because they want to see the crashes. That's what yeah. they're holding out That's why I watch Formula One. I'm not really a fan. I just want to see them crash. Come on. You know, that's the only reason why with it that way. Did did in that period from when you qualified to, to the lead up, you know, the uniform and kind of all that lead up, you're talking about sort of feeling that way. But 
I mean, do you remember that experience of arriving in Italy, your first time in the village, like opening ceremony, kind of all those little first moments and things that you have and like were you taking it in or were you just so focused in on your competition that kind of that stuff hit you later on? I think it hit me later on. It was, um, yeah, I got taken. We had a car ride that was like I think two and a half hours up to the village and then but we had to once they got picked up from the airport you had to go and get all your uniform and get fitted out and all of these things and try on all your clothes and that was exciting you were like oh my gosh i'm getting all of these clothes um (laughs) all of these little things so and then you might um (laughs) and then um and they then, give you that with a uniform, like have have here's your uniform, have Vegemite. Vegemite every Olympics, it's great. Wow, that's um, what it's funny because I don't eat it in Australia, but every time I'm in Europe, all I want is Vegemite. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then what did we do? Went drove up to the village, got put in, showed my room, which was, and then my flatmate, my roommate, didn't turn up. But then the next day. My roommate turned up, and I think I'd met her once before, and it was a, one of the skeleton athletes, Michelle Steele. <coughs> and that was like my roommate for the next three weeks. <laughs> I was like, hey. Um, <laughs> and her and I have ended up being really good mates ever since, So, right. um, which is brilliant. So, And all those little things. But, yeah, I think and, and a lot of my 2006 Olympics is her and I going out and discovering the village and, um, and doing those type of things. But... Yeah, and and the fan like and my family all came except for my older sister as well, and, and I think those type of things it sort of set in after that. But yeah, it was all a bit overwhelming at first. I think I just needed that race to be over. <laughs> Whereas Vancouver, I was far more relaxed. Well, at least with you know, I mean, the opening ceremony, you what got to see uh, Andrea Bocelli. You got to see like what's Ferrari's yeah. doing donuts. And you got to see Ricky Martin in the closing oh, ceremony. So I didn't do the opening ceremony. All oh, the you didn't do it. You didn't. You didn't do either. Oh no. Why not? Um, I was racing on day. I had to train the next day um, for uh, after um, the opening ceremony. And most of us losers don't do the the opening ceremony because the men compete on day one and the women compete on day three but we're training on day one uh so we're training before the actual opening ceremony so um so i decided to put my focus into the training i went to the vancouver opening ceremony that was amazing um because i decided i was fine otherwise i was going to be sitting around all day the next day anyway as well sleep it off so um but yeah the it was yeah, and then the closing ceremony. I, I didn't do either closing ceremony, actually. I left before then because I kind of got a bit bored of the <laughs> <laughs> Been away for so many months. I was just like, okay, I'm done. Wow. Just get me out of here. Because we compete. I'd competed and finished by day four. So, you know. I, You're yeah. just, you all the free McDonald's in the village. You got sick of that. You were just like, oh, I've had enough Big Macs. I want to go home now. <laughs> I was over it. So, yeah. <laughs> Look, it was great, but I just, I, um, yeah, I just, because a lot of my teammates that I trained with on circuit, like all my friends from Luge, they all get to come in and only stay for the competition and then they leave. So wow. a lot of them had left. So I was sort of, you know, I went around, I went skiing for a day, I went, you know, to, to doing these other things. But then, 
Yeah, just after a while. <laughs> I always, I, I always feel because like I watch the Olympics and like particularly say like the summer ones. They'll talk about how like the swimmers are back in the village because they're competing first thing tomorrow. And like I, I always would feel that if that was me, I'd be like, no, fuck convention. I don't care. I'm getting up before. I'm walking out into that opening ceremony behind my country's flag. I'm going to wave a couple of times and I'm going to go to bed. Like this is coming from a non-athlete, Hannah. Clearly, I have no idea what training is like. So, but like that's just me. I, I would assume that that would be half the experience. So like when you experience that in Vancouver, though, were you all of a sudden like, okay, well, I'm glad I've experienced one of these. I was so glad I did it. It was such a great opening ceremony and the thrill like when you walk in that the door was like into the stadium and it was just flooded with all this amazing atmosphere that was going on. Um, Yeah, that was, I was so glad I did that. Um, And it was really special too because my parents had got tickets to the opening ceremony. So they were able to see me walk in and do all of that so it's a great uh, stadium there in vancouver too like the roof and everything i'm sure it would have even been louder basically the atmosphere oh it was it was amazing it was actually like uh wow what am i walking into it was it was fantastic whereas i did the opening ceremony in pyeongchang and it's a bit like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) this is this is fine (laughs) so um but it was yeah it was great i'm glad i got to experience the only thing i'm annoyed that i didn't get to experience in torino was Pavarotti. i think he was Mm. he sunk and amazing to see Um, come on ricky martin in the closing i mean how italian can you get i mean i'm still baffled 15 years later why ricky martin was in the closing ceremony (laughs) He's, he's, I don't know, he's not even Italian, is he? No, he's, uh, what is he, uh, is he Puerto, Puerto Rican, I believe? Um, so, yeah, I, I know Avril Lavigne did the Vancouver, sort of the, the preview thing, but she was, was she in the opening or the closing in Vancouver? I know, uh, she was in one of them. Tardo and Brian Adams were in the opening. Of course. Uh, you got Katie Lang. You missed out on Nickelback, though, if you did the closing. How did you not go to the closing, Hannah? No, look, I just... After six months of being overseas, I don't know why I didn't. I actually left on the day of the opening ceremony. Wow. I think why, why I did, sorry, now I remember. My sister had had um, my first Denise. So I, if I could leave on that day, I could go and I could see her. Right. Nickelback or niece? It's yeah, I, I didn't know Nickelback was going doing it, but yeah, yeah I just was it Michael Bu- You saw Michael Bublé was in the opening ceremony. Was he in the clone? I think it was the opening, wasn't he? He did Maple Leaf Forever, I believe, in the openings. There yeah. were multiple reasons, I think, as well. Like I was, yeah, I was tired and just wanted to get home to some sun, I think, too, and <laughs> and um, yeah, all, all the all the friends are left with. Like I mean, see those things as well. They're kind of special to spend with your friends but like I had friends on the bobsleigh team I probably should have just gone yeah but you know in hindsight you look back on these things it was like why don't you do that which you mentioned about sort of in in Turin how you were aiming to go under 50 you did that in the training but then in all four of your runs you went under 50 seconds as well so I mean was that was that the goal like once you did it once you were like okay well I can do this now I'm going to make sure each of my runs was under 50 and what was that like to achieve that on each of your runs I remember the first run I achieved it and I was like, oh, brilliant. But then it just kept getting better and better. But the thing is, though, with race, they they do race ice. So you're always going to go faster in races and you're always wearing a more aerodynamic uh, race suit and your sled's done up race, you know, ready for races as well. So your steels are a lot faster generally, you know. Um, (coughs) So if the weather conditions are right, especially if they're holding it at night, you generally tend to go faster. But, you know, when you're a novice in these sports as well, that was an aim I'd set for myself as a beginner. 
that I'd never been under 50. And then when I got it, I was like, okay, this is good. It was, it was um, yeah, if anything, it was a little bit of motivation for me. And also, do you set a goal not to come last? Like, I mean, kind of, you said, like, I, I don't know how that would work because, like, it's, oh. it's a simple thing to say, I guess, but... <laughs> Well, I ended up, so originally it was we were meant to have 30 in the Olympics, but then they opened up a space for somebody, so there was 31. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was I, I qualified close to the end anyway, so I knew there was a high potential. Uh, yeah, so yeah, there was that aim not to be very last. <laughs> what was it? Is it like, 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 so you beat uh, Argentinian Michelle Despain. Now, like, I mean, is she a rival? Because you're kind of like close to it. Like, is there one person you're like, well, I've got to beat the Argentinian Luge. Like, traditional rivals in Luge, Australia and Argentina. Like, you've got to beat the Argentinian. I, um, my roommate for, for like that whole season. So we were on the same small nations team. So, yeah. But there were certain like, you know, people that you're like, I'm better than this person. So I should. <laughs> so. <laughs> before, before I just I want to quickly ask about Vancouver and we'll talk about what you've been doing after sort of your career but I just want to quickly on the starts when when you're doing the the, the is there like a a number of I guess pushes that you're meant to do like are you trying to sort of get to a point without touching the ice a certain amount of times is there a method depends on the track or oh it depends on the track um totally depends on the track so some some tracks you can do three paddles some tracks you can do um like uh, Winterberg now, since they changed it, you do several more paddles. It really depends on the ramp and the um, the incline of the ramp as well. So, <coughs> um, and and how many you can do before you know that actually make a difference as well. Before you have to get into your sled and settle in time before you hit a corner. And is there times then when you do a start and you sort of you get in a position and you're going down the track where you're like, fuck yeah, that was the best start. I'm 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 on for it here. And then times like shit, like like I fucked up. And then you've got to kind of make it up. Like, do you have that feeling straight away? Uh, yeah. So if you hit a wall and you start ramp, you usually you're screwed. <laughs> you know that that's not going to come back with a good time, and you can't make it back because you know, as you know, with everything, start at the top, and if you slow at the top, you're not going to be that far. You're not going to be fast at the bottom. Whereas fast the top you're going to be a lot faster at the bottom so it's um yeah if you if you hit at the top it's never a good thing <laughs> you mentioned with the sled being about 23 kilos i'm assuming it's sort of a case of um weight provides speed in a lot of these sports so like does it is there like a, a weight sort of category or something? Like if you're a heavier sledder, that's more of an advantage. If you're a lighter sledder, it's less. And are you allowed to weight things down to kind of keep the discrepancy if you're a bigger person versus a smaller person? So when I competed, um, you could wear lead on yourself, but only up to a certain amount of kilos. So I think it was 75. Um, you and your lead, your weight could be with the weight lead on it, on you, um, which we used to wear in weight vests around like your torso or um, in shorts or something. Um, <coughs> you could only wear a maximum of 10 kilos. Uh, but for me, myself, it was like I was 71 sometimes when I was competing, so I could only wear four kilos of lead. Um, and then when I built up far more muscle, I always had a lot of muscle, but then when I went through a lot of training sessions, I actually ended up being like 76 kilos. So I didn't end up wearing any lead. But there was another girl who was 
55 kilos um, and she could only ever be 65 kilos because she could wear a maximum of 10. So is there, so there's not like boxing where you're weight. So if you're 76 kilos, it's not a case of you're overweight, you can't compete. It's, it's stiff shit. You're just going to compete how you are. They had one athlete who was 100 kilos. She just wow. couldn't, she had to be, like she couldn't wear anything else extra on her and a sled had to pay the absolute minimum. Wow. And does that help? Like is, is it a case of heavier the better or does it not make much of a difference? Um, it depends how you drive the track. Uh, like if you're heavy, if you're like there was one Russian slider who's like over 100 kilos and his start was a bit slow but at the bottom of the track he was flying and he'd win quite a few races because he carried all of that weight and heavy speed. He'd always take people up on the bottom of the track, whereas, um, yeah, if, if, you know, if you're not good on the start or if you're hitting corners on the way down, it's just never going to help you anyway. In terms of uh, the aerodynamic you're talking about, uh, I mean, that's all about positioning. Uh, you know, is there certain special suits? Like, is it kind of like swimming when they had those sort of speed suits that were kind of helping? Like, are they always developing technology for better suits in luge? Yeah, yeah, and there's certain materials that they use as well for the suits. Like, I'm probably a little bit out of that now because, um, you know, there, there's certain suit manufacturers that you go to um, on the circuit. But uh, I haven't worn a suit now for, oh, nearly 10 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not coming out of retirement anytime soon then to... Uh... Try for, for Beijing or Cortina or something along those lines. The period between Turin and, and Vancouver then, so uh, you, you, as you said, kind of Turin was a bit of a bonus. You were always aiming for 2010. So that period, was it then just a case of, okay, well, I'm still going to go towards 2010 and sort of did it become an easier sort of thing to qualify for? Were you right on the cusp again or sort of like how was that process between the two games and then qualifying for 2010? I always knew I'd qualify for 2010 because um, the qualification wasn't, too difficult and I qualified comfortably for it as well, uh, which was good. Um, and it was once again being in the top 30 of an Olympic adjusted field. So for me, by that stage, it wasn't it wasn't difficult. Um, but you know, I had four more years of training on top of me by then, so it was um, it was good. And I learned a lot more. And even like if I look back on pictures, like just my position on the sled and everything, I look at it and go, okay, yeah, <laughs> you'd actually learn to slide. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always things that you can improve on as well when you slide too. And you know, a lot of a lot of luge and a lot of bobsled skeleton rely on the technology in your sled as well. So um, yeah, and you've also got to, it's not just the sled. Like you could, yeah, give me the fastest sled in the world but you've got to have the knowledge and the coach as well, the coaching um, down the track, but the people who are going to help you work on your sled, the people who can help you out with those type of things as well. How much work does go on a sled? And like, is it a case of you just adjusting the the slide? Like the kind of what, what, it's not like a pit stop in Formula One, again, just reference that sport. Like, I mean, but I'm sure there's still technical things and mechanical things that you can do to tweak things, can you? Yeah, so uh, a lot. And once again, you know, I haven't competed in nearly 10 years, but the, um, you know, we used to use, you, you do sled work, we call it. Um, so every night you're sanding your skills um, and you, you've you got different angles you can put on your skills. You can, um, uh, you know, and you, to get them, yeah, you're sanding like at the beginning of the season, you're sanding up new sets of skills from like using what I think 220 grit to like 
2000 grit and then diamond pasting them on top of that to make sure that they're like mirrors that you can see. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work. There's little things that you can do and tweak your sleds here and there, which we always played around with. But yeah, once, once again, it was like 10 years ago. So <laughs> I forget. And it's probably like, you know, been pushed back into the far the back of the memory, stuff. things like that. <laughs> I don't ever have to remember all those lovely times in the sled, the sled shop. How 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 is it um, getting a sled on like a Qantas flight? If you you know like do you, do you bring it back to Australia or do you just keep it over in Europe and just pick it up when you go back over there? Oh, I did keep it in Europe a lot um, because it was too expensive and Australians didn't get it. They didn't get what it was. Uh, <laughs> what is that in your suitcase? Oh, just a luge. <laughs> and and then you'd have to take it apart sometimes and put some. Like some people, one guy carried his steels in a in a gun case because wow. He could take it gun parts on a plane whereas he couldn't take like uh, air canada had a a clause written into this which was said you can't take luges because i think they've been sued for damage to a luge months multiple luges and um and so i remember being at the airport and they said is it a skeleton or a luge because we can't take luges but we can't take skeletons and i was like oh it's a skeleton yeah they were like oh Okay, no worries. I was like, great. Wow. So, um, and in for me traveling separately, I used to take my sled on the flights because um, it was cheaper that way. Whereas when you traveled with the bigger teams, you could put it into the other sled boxes and you pay about 3,000 euros in in transport um, costs wow. per year. Um, that's, but Bob's like, that would be far, far more. So imagine. we used to have a big truck that used to turn up with all our sleds and sled boxes. Um, but, yeah, it's – and that was easier to not have to bother with all the sleds because, you know, then you have to hire a car to take your sled as well. But, I mean, a bobsleigh, you've got to hire a truck. So um, – Did you yeah. name them? Did you have, like, names for your sleds? No. <laughs> oh, didn't want I'm to actually you... there are athletes who do, but me, I didn't – I don't remember – I'm, I'm just thinking here, like, you know, you could do, do all fancy. And it's also kind of, I guess, not like quite like a bob, so you can paint it all up and make it all fancy. Like, I'm sure you can put, like, a sticker on it or something. Like, like, you, yeah, yeah. You, um, some people used to have great designs on their sleds, but, yeah, mine were, you know, bits and pieces here and there made up of, you know, you get some parts from Canada, some parts from Latvia, some parts from... So, <laughs> <laughs> bits and pieces here and there. Uh, you finished twenty third in Vancouver this time around, though. Uh, more people finished. So while I guess you could say you were second last in two thousand and six, uh, you were twenty third out of twenty seven finishes. So I mean, same position, but you beat more people. So I mean, <laughs> like in all seriousness, like what were your goals for Vancouver? Like, did you, was it a time thing? Were you looking because you'd finished top twenty in the World Cup a year prior? So were you looking for top twenty? Kind of what were your um, goals? I was looking for a lot better because I. A lot of experience on the track, but we've got to remember that two days, three days before that race, um, one of the athletes from Georgia died. Um, so we had to, the men got moved to the women's start and the women got moved to the junior start. So we had two runs from the junior start and then we were competing the next day. Um, so it was a totally different track, it was a totally different speed. So there probably would have been more crashes or something, um, or, you know, who knows, I could have been one of them. But the, um, I think I probably would have placed better because I had a lot of experience on that track um, had I have 
had we had been a lot further up the track. But we'll never know. Like I'm, I, look, I was happy with that result um, at the end of the day because at the end of the day, pretty much all your goals had to go out the window for what you had. Um, and and it was what it was at the end of the day. You and know? I can imagine the mood must have been pretty pretty foul over those Olympics after after Nadar's death. Yeah, well, I used to. So Nadar used to be on our team with the Small Nations for some training as well. Um, so I knew him, and yeah, it was that was a shock. Uh, I think it was a shock as well because people crash all the time in luge, <laughs> but people don't pass away. Hmm. So yeah, for us it was. Um, it was, yeah, it was a shock to the whole Luge community. And then to also, like, Luge kind of slips under the radar there, you know, with some of the Olympic sports. So for our sport to be such a major focus was, um, I don't know, quite overwhelming, I think. Um, yeah, and for, for me to be a focus of, you know, can we have a question for this media outlet and this and this and this, it was, yeah, I just kind of wanted to hide in my hole and, and it's one of the reasons why as well I left Vancouver early because I just wanted to get over the whole thing. So it was, yeah. Which I can also imagine too, like as you're saying, like luge on paper, is, it looks like a fairly dangerous sport, lots of crashes, lots of injuries and all that sort of stuff. But it's something that I think at the time they mentioned that it wasn't necessarily a high fatality sport. So, I mean, had you experienced a fatality before? And when you see that, like, does that make you sort of, question whether this should be something you should be doing anymore and kind of make you think a little bit differently about what you're doing? No, uh, nobody had died in sports since 1972, I think. Wow. Um, yeah, they've got more fortalities in, in skiing, but then yeah, more people compete in skiing. Uh, but, I mean, at, at your top level, you've probably got, yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah, it's hard to say. It was, no, it never made me rethink what I was doing because um, <clears throat> I knew I could slide the track. Um, but it, yeah, definitely, I, it, yeah, it just changed the whole tune. I, you know, for a sport that has been going for many years and, um, an international federation that really does try to look after their athletes. And we are a close knit family, um, dysfunctional at times, I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> um, like every family, exactly. but, um, it was, yeah, it, it was sad to see, you know, sort of the outside world forming their opinions on a sport they knew nothing about. Hmm. It's because it is definitely one of those ones, yeah, like you kind of think it's 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 a lot more dangerous than it is really. And like it's, yeah, as you say, like interesting here, there hadn't really been a fatality at that point, what, nearly 40 years. Um. So it's... uh. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I mean, it was a it was a freak accident too. Like most of these things are, right? Like it just kind of it was a positioning and where he hit on the on the pole and everything. So, sadly, unfortunately, these things will can happen in in a lot of sports. You know, uh, look what happened to um was it Phil Hughes in cricket? You know, things like that. You're never expecting these things are going to happen, and they no, do. So. Exactly, exactly. And it kind of just put down to being an absolute freak accident. Yeah. So after Vancouver was uh, what happened from then? Was it uh, looking at towards twenty fourteen? Did you keep competing? Kind of what what happened post uh, twenty ten? So I kept competing. Um, I did 2010, 2011 season, 2011, 2012 season. Uh, but then after two thousand and twelve, I kept trying to train, but I had a complete burnout. Like my just started losing my hair and. My body just said, you've had enough's enough. Um, 
I had to kind of really think about what I was doing. Uh, it was a really hard decision to make, but I had to make a choice to get healthier. Um, and, yeah, my aim was 2014, but, yeah, it is what it is. And, and it's funny, I went as a, co- like a manager, a coach for Alex to 2014, and I stood actually a year later after I retired, I stood on the track in Koenigsegg when I went on a holiday with my um, husband and I said, um, I stood on the side of the track and watched a few sleds and I was like, ah, I'm actually really happy I'm standing right here <laughs> um, where I am instead of in that track. So, and that was good feeling. So it meant that it was the right choice to make. Um, you know, and, and I was never going to be able to get, you know, Olympic medals. So, you know, what was the, yeah, I'd, I'd probably achieved everything I was going to be able to achieve in the sport. And from that point on, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you're now the president of, of Luge Australia. So was that kind of a transition straight away when you retired? Was it offered to you? Did you take it up? And then obviously now with Alex gunning for his third Olympics, uh, you know, I mean, was that just kind of the natural transition to then help someone like Alex with his Olympic ambitions? Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was just, you know, always, even when I was an athlete, I helped Alex out, like went to the Youth Olympics with him when I was still competing um, and helped him out. And that's always what I wanted to do is to help other athletes continue in a sport that I've loved and that I'm passionate about um, and will continue to do so. And I know that's exactly what Alex wants to do when he's finished as well. Um, and I think he'd be amazing at it too. So it's nice to know that somebody, yeah, you know, there's two types of athletes, the ones that will quit and never come back and the others that want to help people and see other people keep going. So. I'm really, really happy to see that Alex is that type of person as well. So um, then in your position and say, say with Alex wanting to continue that, like how do you attract the next generation of, of luge athletes then? Like, I mean, you know, we're gunning now for what, is that be five Olympics in a row where we're represented at luge. So you want to keep that torch alive. Hopefully Alex goes on to 2026, but you know, where, where's the next Tanner? Where's the next Alex? You know, where are they coming from for 2030 and onwards? Uh, we do actually have another athlete um, who's 17 um, and he's coming up and he's going to be going for his first little season, but he's been training in America. Um, so he'll be continuing, which is, which is great. Um, and you want to get them young as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he's really keen and his family's really keen. And I think for us, when you want to get them young as well um, and do the junior circuit, it's a lot safer for them as well. But also you've got to try and convince the parents. The parents have to be on board too. And there is this misconception that the sport is extremely dangerous. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah. – and some people might think that I'm insane for saying misconception. But, uh, yeah, you you have to know more about the sport or compete it to realise – compete in it to realise that it, it is it's, – it's a great sport and it's a great family. And I was thinking about it the other day and I thought, oh, you know what, when my kids are about 15, if they haven't got another sporting interest, I'm just going to be like, right, you're going to try luge now. <laughs> I'm not going to push me to it, but I've just decided it's a great family. And it was an amazing, uh, the things that it has offered me to do in my life after sport, you know, my master's degree, um, I got that funded from the IOC to do, I got selected out of six Olympians to do a master's. And that was an amazing opportunity. But also 
you know, continuing on a lot of the friendships I've had. Every time we've gone overseas and travelled, we've always visited somebody from the luge circuit and seen them caught up. I had to right. go to a meeting for luge in Slovenia a couple of years ago. I never would have gone to Slovenia before. Um, I wouldn't, like, probably, you know, my <laughs> my ignorance, but I probably wouldn't have even known where it was. <laughs> Same with Latvia. I would ne- I didn't even know where it was. I was like, where's Latvia? Where, where's, what's this country? And it's one of my favourite countries in the world. Um, and same with Slovenia, beautiful places that I never would have had these opportunities to travel to um, had it not have been for my career in luge. If you were a swimmer or kept with, you know, tennis and, you know, you're just going to uh, yeah, the UK, US, whoop de doo But, yeah, Slovenia, Latvia, great with that. Is it, I mean, is it a sport, like when you're saying getting them young, like is there a certain sports that you can keep an eye on certain athletes to try and entice them? Like I know, like, say, you know, we spoke with Emma Lincoln-Smith a long time ago and she sort of, you know, got the AIS letter, come and try out for skeleton, like sort of sort of that recruitment certain sports do for winter sports. Like is that something, is there one sport that if some kid's good at one sport, oh, let's transition over to luge? Not really. Um, not for luge, uh, I don't think, because um, it's, a, it's a sport for all shapes and sizes. Like if you got on circuit, you see some are extremely tall, some are short, some are tubby, some are, you know, extremely tubby, <laughs> some, some are really skinny. Um, yeah, it's really, and, and it's, yeah, I don't, I don't think it is. It's just something that you kind of, you try and if you've got a bit of a natural knack for it. Whereas for skeleton, I know Michelle Steele was a beach sprinter and so was Emma Lincoln-Smith. Um, and they've got that background in sprinting where there was that transfer. Um, whereas, I mean, you know, it'd be good to have some shoulder strength, but, yeah. It's interesting to hear that because it's like, you know, you know, a lot of aerial skis, you know, Alyssa Camplin, you know, that you know they were gymnasts, you know, things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of fascinating that there's kind of not that automatic transition, like you're not hanging around a, like a basketball court or a soccer field always, you know, going, oh, that person there, that'd be a good loser. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I can imagine it's, it's a very hard sport to market. You're not just going down to the local primary school going, hey, kids, come try luge. But that's pretty much what they do overseas. <laughs> <laughs> All those German ones where they're like, oh, cool, I can be like, you know, the Michael Phelps of Germany in Luge. Australia, like, I mean, you're one of only three, well, four Australian um, to ever compete in the Olympics in Luge. So so in Germany, they have a paid school. The government pays for a school program. So wow. now we go off in sport in the junior school and we used to play softball, t-ball or whatever. Yep. Um, or do athletics or play soccer. Um, they go off and luge for four hours a week. So Standard Tuesday oh. in Germany, basically. <laughs> so, the luge training to go after school today. <laughs> and that's how it's all done from a government funding. They all have huge clubs within the same regions. So it basically their success in the sport is the success of this multiple layers of, you know, funding and um, performance, uh, wow. performance training as well. It's 
fascinating fascinating how different parts of the world obviously have these you know some, something so foreign to, to one country yet it's just a standard thing basically there Hannah before I let you go uh, obviously we've mentioned um, Alex a few times uh, and we're hoping to get him on the show obviously in the lead up to Beijing but what, what are your thoughts in, in you know we're obviously not that far away from the winter games uh, does he you have hopes for Alex kind of you know you're you looking forward to going over and watching him compete kind of like what what's your sort of uh, goals and hopes for Alex in the uh, in the coming months in the lead up to Beijing? Well, it's hard to say because um, of COVID, (laughs) (laughs) good old COVID, Um, because last year he was going to go over and do the season, but then he pulled the plug, um, which, you know, I totally supported um, given the current climate. And it wasn't, and and same with like, you know, Bob Slane Skeleton, they didn't record any of the points towards the Olympics because how could you? Their whole circuit wasn't there and they basically, like the Americans only did a few World Cups and all the races were based in Europe. Um, so it was hard to do So he's had a year off, but Alex is an extremely talented athlete um, in luge. Uh, he's just born in the wrong country. Uh, so he's an extremely talented. He's got a lot of respect on the international circuit. And what's really great about our lovely luge family is he's got a lot of supporters as well from a lot of other countries who help him out because they can see he's got so much talent and he also, um, he wants it as well. And what's been beautiful for me is I've seen him grow as an athlete when I took him when he was, I think, 16 years old to the Youth Olympic Games in in uh, Innsbruck in, yeah, in 2012. And now, and then I took him to 2014 Olympics, 2018, and, and uh, now to 2022, it's just been so great seeing him grow as a human but also as an athlete as well over those years. Like it's, it's been really nice being a part of that all. Um, and he's, yeah, he's such, he's, he's a great person and, and a great athlete and he's so dedicated to the sport, which is, um, it's really nice to see. So I, I do have great hopes for him. Um in the sport but yeah I guess we'll just have to see what this season holds for him he's had some great results we got 13th in the world cup um, the season before and he's he's got a lot of talent has has he got the mo back I always liked the look when he had the the mo going like and he kind of also had that sort of like almost like a mop going on like I feel like he's like the fashionista of the Australian winter olympic team I used to tell him you need to grow your fro out like because and he did but then i saw him and he chopped it all off again but i loved the fro when he was a little when he was i think 15 16 when i first met him he had this massive curly fro it looked great i think it's almost there'd be i feel like there's some aerodynamics going on in facial hair like he could kind of grow it to a point where it would help look sort of as you're going down the track like i don't know about the hair out of the helmet but I don't know. Like, I mean, he's got a few months to go. He could work on something here scientifically. The AIS could help him out. I don't know. <laughs> you wear a visor, so I don't think it matters with the facial hair. But there yeah. you go. There's, there's ways. Of it. It's a good picture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the mullet's coming back. I mean, you know, he needs to have something, you know, like just whip off the, the helmet at the Olympics and put the flow, like get a 
sponsorship with Pantene or something like that. I don't know. Like, I'm thinking of some things that can boost the sport. Like, you know, spokesperson for Pantene, you know. That'd be great. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he'd um, be open to all suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hannah, thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. Is there anything people listening today who maybe want to sport, support or get behind Luge in Australia? Like, uh, can they? is there a website? Can they follow on social media? Uh, things like that they can do to support? Uh, yeah, they can. Um, there's social media. They can get in touch with us by our Facebook site um if they're interested and yeah we'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in the sport who's uh yeah wants to give it a go um yeah because we've got different pathways for the young ones and even the old ones we can set up some club sliding for just those ones who've always wanted to try luge <laughs> great well everyone listening right now i, I want to hear from you in 20 years when you've heard this interview and you're competing at the the olympics that uh this was the, the goal that got you there because uh it has been a great chance to chat with you hannah to learn a little bit more about this today and uh best of luck with everything moving forward and we appreciate your time off the podium thanks Dan. it's been great And a big thanks to Hannah there for her time. Great chat, great insight. Makes me want to take up luge and also makes me uh, a little bit intrigued to see how other sports have fared with Roy and HG's commentary over the years when it comes to the effect on the perception that us as Australians maybe have from these sports. So uh, great insight there from Hannah, and we definitely thank her for her time on the show. We have lots more interviews coming your way over the coming weeks. We mentioned during our Tokyo coverage, we are aiming to try and bring you an interview every single week between now and, of course, the Beijing Olympics. And, of course, a lot of those will be athletes in the lead-up to Beijing. Of course, we also are going to get some people on from Tokyo to talk about their experiences during Tokyo as well. So plenty to keep you covered. And Outside of those interviews as well, we're looking at bringing you some other episodes, a Paralympics episode, hopefully. We'll have a preview, of course, of Pyeongchang. We've talked about doing some sports episodes and plenty of other things we have in the pipeline that we will hope you will stay tuned for. And you will stay tuned next week because our next interview is one of the best interviews I'm saying right now we have ever had on this show. This is a lot of fun. Ashley Werner, who is a bobsledder from Australia. Now, you probably remember us talking to Brianna Walker several months back about her monobob career and her hopes ahead of Beijing. And during that interview, you would remember us talking about her being cut from Pyeongchang at the last minute. There was a whole kerfuffle around qualification spots and everything along those lines, which basically saw Brie had a ticket to Pyeongchang. She had everything ready to go, but was cancelled last minute her spot on that team. Now, her co-bobsledder that was also cut with her was Ashley. And Ash talks a little bit about that, but a lot more about her sort of bobsledding careers and her hopes ahead of Beijing. And it's such a fun chat. You will be in love with Ashley. She is such a fun, bubbly personality and such a fun, entertaining interview. I am not sugarcoating this or I'm not trying to oversell this or anything along those lines. I'm telling you now, you will thoroughly enjoy this chat. So that is next week. Ashley Werner, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you want to stay tuned to what else we've got going on on the show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Stay up to date with everything. We appreciate all the feedback and everything we get along those lines there. Of course, coming off the back of Tokyo, we've had a very busy last few weeks. So now we hope you're still on board and enjoying these interviews that we are bringing you along the way. And also, of course, remember to subscribe to our shows and all the 
good podcast channels, all the bad ones too. I'm sure there's some bad ones out there. You can hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, you name it, we are there. And while you're there, why not leave some feedback? We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, in the meantime, that's it for today. Thanks again to Hannah. Thanks for you tuning in. Tune in next week for Ashley. And my name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium. We'll speak to you next time. Good night. Good night.